the Slaughter and May podcast. Hello to everybody. Thank you for joining us today for this, the second webinar in our M&A Perspective Winter Series. Over the course of the next hour or so, we're going to be looking at the key M&A market practice trends across Europe, Asia, and the US since the onset of the pandemic, and looking at some key takeaways going into 2021. My name is David Watkins. I'm a partner in our corporate team. Today, I'm joined by Natalie Cook, a fellow corporate partner here in London, Chris McGaffin, a partner in our Hong Kong office, who will be giving us the Asian perspective, and Richard Hall, a partner at Cravath, Swain & Moore in New York, uh, who will be talking a bit about recent developments in the US, and no, not those recent developments. Uh, we're going to be spending the first 50 minutes or so discussing and analyzing the trends we've been seeing by jurisdiction, and then in the final 10 minutes or so, we'll be taking your questions. Attendees will be on mute throughout the session, but if you'd like to submit a question, you can do so via the chat function, which you can find in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. Simply click on the speech bubble icon, and you can send your questions through to Oliver Lawrence, who will be putting questions to the four of us at the end of the session. Today's session is being recorded, and the recording will be made available after the event. And we aim to finish by 1 p.m. UK time. So our COVID research project kicked off back in the spring of 2020. The idea was to compare M&A market practice immediately before the onset of the pandemic against market practice as it's developed over the COVID period. The study focused on private M&A deals and started in the UK and Europe, but quickly we expanded it to cover the US and then onto some of the key Asian economies, as well as a number of jurisdictions across the African continent. In the early stages of the pandemic, uh, M&A volumes suffered a massive blow, and we were pretty worried that we simply wouldn't have enough raw data from which to draw proper trends. However, Q2 of last year saw an uptick in M&A activity, and so we feel that the data set we've looked at actually gives us a fair shot at calling out what we believe to be quite clear trends which emerged. A health warning at the outset, the data that we've used comprises the deals on which we and our relationship firms across the globe have actually advised. So whilst it doesn't catch every reported deal in each of the sample jurisdictions we've looked at, we have been fortunate in being able to delve into the intricate details of the deals which we have in fact studied. And we've also been able to offer a bit of a personal perspective on the trends which we see emerging. So at the outset of the study, we had as a hypothesis and a pretty simple one at that. We expected there to be a notable shift in risk allocation between sellers and buyers. Traditionally, pre-COVID, private M&A placed more risk on buyers, and this manifested itself in a number of ways. First, buyers usually had, a very, had very few get-out rights. So once an SBA was signed, a buyer would be committed to complete and usually forewent termination remedies. Traditionally, buyers were only able to wriggle off the hook on the back of a very limited number of conditions precedent in most cases. Second, in the pre-COVID world, cash was used as the very, very popular consideration currency in the vast majority of cases and was usually payable in one lump sum at completion, enabling sellers a clean and virtually risk-free exit. Third, price adjustment mechanics were the exception rather than the norm, with most deals being stuck on a lockbox basis, with reference to an account date set before signing. Our hypothesis 
was that given the uncertainties that we've come to experience through the COVID period, we would see a shift in this risk allocation with buyers pushing more of the risk in MA onto sellers. We expected to see, number one, more cautious buyers generally, fighting harder in negotiations for more conditionality in deals, fighting for lower effort obligations and trying to achieve or satisfy those conditions. In other words, the old best efforts versus reasonable efforts debate. Second, we expected to see buyers being more creative in relation to deal structures generally, using deferred consideration and earnout structures so that they wouldn't necessarily be taking on all the risk that comes with an M&A deal being struck at a single moment in time, in other words, at completion. Third, we were expecting to see buyers utilizing alternative forms of consideration, such as using their shares as acquisition currency, again, to try and spread that risk and share more risk with sellers. And more generally, uh, we were expecting buyers to be looking at other ways in which to try and mitigate risk of doing deals in uncertain times. So today, what we're going to do, we're going to explore our findings on a region-by-region basis. And the striking revelation is that in most of the jurisdictions that we've looked at across the study, the trends we've seen emerging have been pretty consistent. Let's start with the UK. I'm just going to click on to the slide. So transaction type, so far, there have been less opportunistic M&A transactions than we might have expected during this period. We think this is partly because at the outset of the pandemic, PE funds were very much in portfolio management mode rather than in opportunistic M&A or stroke acquisition mode. However, in more recent months, we've seen this trend reversing or at least reversing a bit. There is a lot more liquidity available and we expect to see more activity in the coming months, particularly as businesses which have not weathered the storm as well uh, explore strategic options, including sales. Second, in the UK, consideration type. The majority of deals over our study period involve cash consideration, so there, not much has changed. However, we have started to see more share-for-share exchange transactions. We've also seen deals being done for a mixture of shares, loan notes, and cash in varying proportions. And Chris is, in fact, going to come on to this a bit more when he talks about the Asian trends and look at the particular consideration structures which are being used by buyers. Third, We've seen a notable uptick in the number of deals incorporating price adjustments with reference to completion accounts, incorporating more uh, rather than the ones which incorporate more seller-friendly lockbox type structures. Given the grave uncertainty in trading conditions, buyers seem to be becoming increasingly focused on the accuracy of financial performance data and want the opportunity to test that properly once they've gained keys to the stable. An increasing proportion of transactions are including some element of deferred consideration. We've seen many examples of this over the period, ranging from a set purchase price paid in multiple tranches to very complicated earnout arrangements based on target performance post-completion. There is also an increasing number of deals actually incorporating option arrangements as a means of mitigating COVID uncertainties where people are striking the deal, including optionality as to whether or not they want to go ahead and complete the deal. And that option is usually on the buy side that we've seen. Fourth in the UK, some pretty interesting trends around conditionality. So two main themes here. First, contractual conditionality. And second, what we'll categorize as regulatory conditionality for the purpose of today. So looking first at contractual uh, conditionality, and in particular, material adverse change clauses. 
At the outset of the pandemic, our colleagues in the disputes team were kept pretty busy analyzing force majeure clauses and map clauses, testing whether COVID and its effects would in fact qualify as a material adverse change which would allow buyers to escape from deals which they no longer want to be bound by, so trying to wriggle off the hook. The UK courts, and indeed our regulators, in particular the takeover panel here, have traditionally been very strict when it comes to invoking map clauses, and the COVID test has in fact proved no exception. The UK panel was faced early on with what could have been a rather dramatic test case. Uh, for anybody following it, was the Mossbros case where a foreign bidder applied to escape it from its offer after having made uh, a firm intention to make an offer announcement on account of not only a MAC, but various other protective type conditions which it had included in its offer document. However, the matter never even made it through to appeal, then possibly because the executive, when it gave its ruling of first instance, was so emphatic about the bidder not being permitted to invoke its MAC clause uh, that the bidder decided that any appeal would be futile and drop that charge. In new MAC clauses, so that those existing MAC clauses were obviously at the outset of the pandemic. Uh, what we've seen more recently is people in the negotiation of new MAC clauses focusing increasingly on the debate as to whether COVID and its effects should be excluded from MAC type events. And in the vast, in the vast majority of cases, in fact, COVID is indeed being excluded. So parties are agreeing that the pandemic and its effects will not count in determining whether or not a MAC has occurred, which would allow a buyer to wriggle off the hook. And finally, on contractual type conditions, a very quick word on financing conditions. We've also thought at the outset that we would see far more financing conditions being used by buyers who were nervous about the plug potentially being pulled on their funding before completion. However, this is not something that we've seen much evidence of in the UK at all, at least not at this stage. When we did our African study, however, uh, there has been a trend across West Africa towards financing conditions being included so that if the financing uh, of a particular buyer gets pulled, the buyer will be able to walk away and not complete on its deal. Um, and turning very briefly to regulatory conditionality, you'll already be aware of our new national security and investment bill in the UK, which is not yet law, of course, but is already having an impact on M&A in the UK, uh, and that's because when the bill does eventually become law, which is expected in the early spring, it's going to apply with retrospective effect, that all the way back to transactions struck from after the of November. Parties are focusing on this in UK deals and grappling with issues, uh, such as whether or not to pre-notify the authorities to try and uh, firstly get some sense of conflict that they're on the right side of those, those rules, uh, and second, to try and reduce the unwind periods that will apply, uh, the authorities will have the power to unwind transactions in certain cases. And finally, on the regulatory side, due to Brexit, we see the role of the CMA uh, becoming much more prominent. So the CMA, uh, I think most people would agree, become far more aggressive in their approach uh, for UK-related transactions. And the one effect that we're certainly feeling as a result of Brexit is the dual notification requirements in many cases, where transactions are going to have to be notified and indeed cleared, not only in the UK through the CMA, but also in Europe. Uh, what we're watching closely in this space is whether or not the proliferation of hello high water clauses, which we've seen before, will continue into the future, or whether or not buyers uh, will be 
sort of uh, trying to push some of that regulatory risk indeed onto sellers in the way that we've seen um, buyers trying to shift other risk onto sellers in these circumstances. Um, and a final trend there on the, on the slide is in respect of W&I insurance. I mean, here we've got a sort of a very interesting stat. Almost a third of the transactions in the UK over the period involved W&I insurance, a very marked increase uh, from five, ten years ago, of course. Uh, interestingly, uh, premier have held steady, notwithstanding the fact that we've got uncertainty and one would expect there to be, or at least a perceived increase in risk associated with the pandemic period. Uh, the reason for that, having spoken to some of the WNI insurance providers, seems to be that the market, the WNI insurance market, is increasingly competitive and parties have a number of options available to them, therefore keeping prices in check. I'm going to hand over to Natalie now to point out some of the more striking trends which we've seen emerging across continental Europe since the onset of the pandemic. Natalie, over to you. Thank you, David. So I'm now going to take you on what will be very much a whistle-stop tour of what we and our best friend firms have seen and expect to see in France, the Netherlands, Germany, Italy and Spain. So stepping back, there have been signs of private M&A returning in all of these jurisdictions following a period of fear and firefighting in the first half of last year. Although overall deal volume was down in 2020 and there was more domestic M&A than cross-border, M&A activity in Europe experienced a striking recovery in the second half of last year. And the pipeline indicates continued activity in the early months of this year, at least, with cautious optimism amongst dealmakers for 2021 overall. Now, despite the pandemic, we haven't actually seen huge shifts in the types of terms being, being agreed in private M&A in these jurisdictions as compared to the pre-COVID position. But what I'm going to do now is just highlight some of the specific shifts and trends that we have encountered within those jurisdictions. So, starting with France, since the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been an uptick in distressed sales and sales through bankruptcy proceedings. And this is expected to continue this year, in particular as loans granted between March and December last year under the 300 billion euro state guarantee scheme will start to become repayable from this March. In terms of contractual protection, there has been an increase in the use of MAC clauses in France. And the drafting has interestingly shifted from narrow business max to more buyer-friendly general market max. So since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, MAC clauses relating to general events, including pandemics, have been used for a greater number of people. Now, there's been an increase in contentious disputes in France, in particular in relation to MAC, and also in relation to closing no-shows on the part of buyers, and in respect of sellers refusing access rights to buyers between signing and closing. And sellers are unsurprisingly raising COVID-19 as an excuse for covenant breaches. So moving on to the Netherlands, in early 2020, as COVID-19 began to emerge there, there started to be a few distressed deals there. And this has continued. And it's particularly the case in relation to opportunistic interest in businesses which are specifically impacted by COVID-19. There has been an increase in contentious disputes in the Netherlands, uh, most commonly for material breaches of interim covenants. In, in Dutch transactions, MACs are not common, and where they are included in transaction documentation, they tend to be narrow business-specific MACs, excluding pandemics. So in the context of COVID, buyers are more frequently claiming breaches of interim covenants. There's been limited judicial input so far, but early indications suggest sympathy for sellers in that most activities undertaken by targets in the period since the onset of the pandemic will likely to be considered in the ordinary course of business. So sellers are unlikely to be 
considered as having breached interim covenants. Uh, despite this seller-friendly stance, there has been an increase in attempted renegotiations and in closing no-shows by buyers. So some examples of COVID-19-specific terms we've seen in Dutch transactions include indemnities for the target's repayment obligations in respect of COVID-19-related financial support received from the Dutch government, warranties that the target has operated consistently with past practice subject to an exception to measures implemented in response to the pandemic, and carve-outs from interim covenants for measures that the target may need to take in order to meet the impact of COVID-19. Now, these contractual carve-outs from interim covenants to operate targets in the ordinary course of business, together with the early indications of sympathy from the Dutch courts for sellers, which I mentioned just a moment ago, suggest that buyers will likely struggle to successfully argue breaches of interim covenants by sellers in respect of actions taken due to the pandemic. On to Germany. Um, there has been some increase in distressed M&A and restructuring activity in Germany, although most of the distressed deals driven by COVID-19 are likely still to come. In terms of purchase price adjustment mechanisms, the norm before the pandemic in Germany was the locked box, which was used in approximately two-thirds of transactions. And it was expected, you know, like the UK, that there would be a shift to completion accounts. But aside from a brief shift to completion accounts in February and March last year, when completion accounts became more common, um, being used in around 60% of deals, there's since been a return to the locked box, which has been used in the vast majority of deals in Germany. So, quite interestingly, the expected shift of a more buyer-friendly approach to purchase price adjustments has not yet emerged there. In terms of MAC, uh, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic from July 2019 to March 2020, business MACs were agreed in about 25% of the deals that we saw. Uh, more buyer-friendly market max, however, were very uncommon. And following the onset of the pandemic, max became even less common. And unlike France, max, uh, market max was virtually unheard of. Uh, further, where max are being included, we're seeing that COVID-19-related effects are usually carved out from the definition. Turning to Italy, although the pandemic has already forced certain companies and sectors impacted by the pandemic into insolvency or restructuring, an increase in distressed M&A and restructuring activity is expected in the coming months as government support mechanisms unwind. Deferred consideration is becoming more common in Italy, with um, earnouts increasingly being considered as a means of dealing with uncertainty surrounding target financial results. Now, they've generally been in respect of an ancillary portion of consideration only, as opposed to the main part of the consideration, and dependent on specific indicators rather than the general future performance of the target business. In terms of MACs in Italy, overall it seems that MACs are being drafted in a more granular style, with greater attention being given to ensure narrow and precise language is included to address what impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic have already been considered, and are hence irrelevant in assessing whether there is MAC, and what possible future developments have not yet been considered, and hence are relevant in assessing whether there is a MAC. There's also been a shift in approach in warranty protection, uh, prior to the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, repetition business warranties at closing was common practice in Italy. However, since the onset of the pandemic, there's been a reduction in this in respect of operating matters, particularly due to the possible temporary discontinuation of operations, um, the need to have recourse to extraordinary measures and relief, as well as the general will of sellers not to cover operating matters in the interim period. There has been an overall increase in litigation in Italy, but this is mainly related to leases and supply agreements rather than M&A transactions. 
However, there have been some renegotiations to keep deals on track. These have mainly related to MAC, the fact that the emergence of COVID-19 passed the risk under M&A contracts to buyers and delays caused by COVID-19 in regulatory approval proceedings. Now, a point of note is that under the Italian Civil Code, a party can in principle terminate a contract if their obligations become excessively burdensome because of the occurrence of unpredictable or extraordinary events, and where the counterparty does not offer to bring the contract back to an equitable balance. M&A contracts are generally quite resilient to this due to certain provisions that attempt to account for the impact of the crisis, so purchase price adjustments, warranties or by use of an express qualification that the agreement is inherently risky in nature. However, extreme circumstances such as the COVID-19 pandemic might potentially still satisfy conditions under the Italian Civil Code for termination of a contract. Now, that said, due to the remedy's exceptional late nature and its limited application by court, we don't necessarily expect to see parties knocking on the doors of the court in relation to this point. However, it is likely we will see more buyers using this as leverage to renegotiate M&A contracts. And just to flag for completeness, in a similar manner to Italian law, French, German and Dutch law contain statutory provisions which elaborate a principle of impossibility or hardship, which serve to allow parties to amend or terminate a contract if unforeseen circumstances make it excessively onerous to one of the parties. This concept can generally be contractually excluded in transaction documentation, and it's generally considered to be a bit less, less of an issue than with Italy, although, like Italy, we might see buyers use these concepts as the basis on which to seek renegotiations. Finally, turning to Spain, distress sales and prepack sales are not yet common in Spain, in part perhaps due to the liquidity in the market as a result of government schemes, but there might be an increase this year when certain government measures start to be suspended. In terms of litigation, prior to the emergence of COVID-19, Claims in respect of breaches of warranties were common in Spain, although these, along with claims in respect of price purchase, uh, purchase price adjustments, were usually settled out of court. Since the emergence of COVID-19, there's been an increase in disputes relating to a force majeure and rebus substantibus, which is the legal doctrine accepted by Spanish courts and stated in Spanish case law that, in the event of certain unforeseen and extraordinary changes in circumstances, allows parties to apply to the court to compensate for an imbalance in contractual rights and obligations that arose from the change in circumstances. As with Italy, although we don't necessarily expect buyers to be going to court on this point, it is possible that we will see buyers using this more often as a means of leverage to renegotiate contracts. That ends our European whistle-stop tour of the jurisdiction-specific kind of that we've been seeing. So I'll now hand over to Chris McGaffin, who will focus on the Asia perspective. Thanks, Natalie. Yeah, um, I will give an overview for Asia Pacific. We work across both Greater China and, and of course, all the Asian countries. So I, I want to do that in three parts, if we could move the slide on. So first part, I'll talk about a bit of a market overview to give you a, a sense of the context in which the deals are being done. Uh, we'll talk briefly, I think, about the, the key themes that we're seeing driving M&A, which again gives some context. And then finally, we'll look at what's happened to deal terms and sale processes. Just starting with the market overview, I think, um, I, I, I'd make three points. I think um, headline activity levels, APAC region looks to be a sort of standout, actually, if you just look at the headline, headline statistics. So Asia Pacific 
M&A deal value, excluding Japan, was up a quarter in 2020 on 2019, and for Japan was up 1.6 times. So you contrast that with the EU uh, and with the US, and it, it, it just looks a lot, a lot better. Um, that kind of plays quite, quite nicely, I think, with the Asia having a better crisis narrative. Uh, and, you know, there is, there is some truth in that, I think. Um, but I think when you look under the hood of the statistics and when you're actually in region, I, I think there are some things I, I, I can point out that make it seem that it isn't all as rosy as, as those headline stats say. The first thing is that while values were up, volumes were off nearly 10% across Asia Pacific, uh, which I think may more accurately reflect the sort of underlying appetite to do deals across the year. The second is that even on the face of the stats themselves on value, I think you should realize that they're quite heavily skewed by some very significant transactions in China. There are effectively intergroup reorgs as state-owned enterprises shift assets from one hand to the other. So a very good example of that is the oil and gas market liberalization. Three of the top five deals in Asia last year were effectively state-owned enterprises moving assets around to liberalize the economy. We're talking $30, $40 billion deals. The third point um, as to why the headline stats are a bit misleading is that in Asia, we we look at Southeast Asia, in particular the emerging markets there, as a real hotbed of growth, not just economically, but also in M&A. And their performance in M&A was dire in 2020. So deal value was down over a quarter year on year. And if you stripped out one major transaction, which was Tesco selling its business in Malaysia and Thailand, deal value was actually down in Southeast Asia more than 50% last year. The other thing I think that the headlines don't say is what quite what a game of two halves it was. So first half of 2020, we saw our agency is very much playing defense, uh, very much focused on cash conservation, liquidity, their existing businesses. Uh, and as a result, M&A really did take a back seat. Um, the only deals that happened in Q2 really were deals that were already pre-baked in terms of value and structure uh, and due diligence having been done or opportunistic deals. So for a while, as David said at the start, we did wonder whether we'd have anything to say today. Um, the, the pleasing news was that offense returned greatly uh, in Q3. It was actually a record high M&A activity for Asia Pacific. And I think the interesting thing that we saw was uh, similar to what, what David mentioned at the start, we, while there were some rescue transactions, actually a very high, possibly surprisingly high proportion of the deals that were done in that period were actually good assets, competitive processes. Um, and I think when we talk about deal terms, it's important to remember that. Final point on market overview is that I think the headlines mask something that uh, Natalie alluded to, which is that we've seen a big shift in Asia from cross-border M&A to domestic M&A. I think the best way to illustrate that is to look at the two key markets for outbound M&A in Asia, that's China and Japan. Uh, in China, outbound M&A fell to its lowest level since 2009 in 2020, uh, despite M&A overall involving China increasing. Similarly, in Japan, uh, M&A outbound was down two-thirds on 2019, again against overall Japanese M&A increasing in the year. So that, I think, is all I'd say on the market overview. I'll, I'll briefly touch on, on three key themes that we see driving the M&A that we're doing at the moment and that we see driving M&A through next year as well. 
Um, the first is China is definitely open for business. So the China outbound stats were quite disappointing last year, and we'll talk about that a bit more. But actually, China inbound was up uh, 100% on the year before. Uh, and we expect the same sort of levels or increased levels this year and onwards. A key driver for that is uh, China's push to liberalize its economy and specifically to encourage overseas direct investment in Chinese businesses, which I think you should see as partially a counter to the U.S. threats and indeed some U.S. measures to cut off Chinese companies from accessing the U.S. capital markets. So in turn, that policy then feeds down into regulatory changes, which are meant to promote uh, overseas direct investment into China. To, to, to give one example of, of things that we've been working on this year uh, and, and will be again in 2021, uh, a key change was to open up financial services to 100% ownership by foreign companies. And we've seen a lot of clients want to either dismantle current JVs to take advantage of that or to enter the market for the first time with, with wholly owned entities. Second driver, emerging markets. I won't say too much on this. We do have a, a, a an APAC M&A report coming out in a couple of weeks, which will look at these trends in a bit more detail. But I, I think a, a key message is that I, I very much see 2020's dire results for the emerging economies in terms of M&A as very much a COVID-induced blip. Um, lockdowns have roiled around the region. And we certainly don't see this as a deglobalization or a structural shift against Southeast Asia. We expect now that COVID has largely been brought to heel in Asia, that economic growth will, will, will uh, sort of re resume and therefore M&A activities will also resume this year. And it will be a real driver of regional M&A this year and into the next couple of years. Final thing that we're seeing uh, and what I'm wrestling with at the moment is um, FDI, so foreign direct investment restrictions and regulatory restrictions. I think you, you all practice M&A. You will all have seen FDI popping up um, across the, the whole world in 2020, uh, particularly exacerbated, I think, during COVID by uh, the desire to prevent opportunistic M&A, particularly in sort of healthcare and, and related sectors. Uh, we've seen more regimes and also much broader regimes in Australia and CFIUS, for example, in the US. I think for all of us doing deals, this adds complexity. So just, but just to give an Asian perspective, uh, I think the biggest, uh, most significant impact for us is on Chinese outbound. Um, particularly that's because some of the uh, regimes that are introduced are actually nakedly anti-Chinese. So if you look at, for example, India, as I'm wrestling with at the moment, they had a border skirmish in April and promptly introduced a rule which prevented effectively even one dollar of indirect investment in any Indian business in any sector from anyone who has a land border with India. Um, and no clearances have been had yet been given. Now, I don't think they're worried about Pakistani or Bangladeshi uh, M&A. It's clearly aimed at PRC and indeed by extension Hong Kong. Um, these FDI restrictions on Chinese outbound are playing through to us as follows. One, we're seeing much more limited appetite amongst Chinese buyers for doing outbound and limited appetite for banks to fund it. Two, then we're seeing fewer outbounds being done. And three, where we are working on Chinese outbounds, it is a complete headache. So I'm working on one deal at the moment where a Chinese buyer in a non-sensitive sector is trying to buy a multinational 
And when we did the initial desktop review, we discovered we had 49, that's four, four nine, uh, FDI regimes to try and navigate to put the deal through. So you, that just gives you an idea of the complexities we're suffering with. And I, I raise that not just for sympathy, but to kind of explain the trends. So that sets the scene. What have we seen then in terms of deal terms and process? I think from many of the deals that we've done and from the surveys that we've done of our key jurisdictions and network firms, you could kind of take the same headline as David had at the start, which is that there has not been a general shift to a buyer's market that we might have expected. Um, but I think as I hark back to what I said earlier, it's important to bear in mind that quite a lot of the deals that we've done in Q3 and onwards were actually strategically important deals or what I'll call crown jewel assets. Um, and actually, if you look again, if you look below the hood a bit of the overall statistics, I think there are some really interesting things at play on the deals that involve non-crown jewel assets. That I think, to me, show me where the market might move as the crisis uh, wears on. At a headline level, the way I describe that is that on these non-crown jewel deals, I, I think the the shift is is as follows. In the last few years of the seller's market, what we've seen is basically every decision on a sell-side process being taken through the lens of, of price maximization, what's going to get you the best value. And we've seen a definite shift on these deals, and it's borne out by the survey as well, that where there is a bit more hair on the, on the asset or perhaps there's stress financially on the target of the seller, that actually sellers are now moving away from value maximization necessarily and into deal certainty uh, in some important areas. I would draw out just three areas here where we've seen it. Um, conditionality, very similar to what David said about the UK. I think we expected to see, in, including on these you know, non-crown jewel deals, that you would see uh, more outs for business performing downturn uh, prior to closing, but in fact, we've seen fewer so although it's been heavily negotiated, typically sellers have kicked it out. And where we have seen max, uh, the impacts of COVID-19 have generally been excluded. So in short, it seems, and we'll talk about the next two points in a second, but in short, it seems that sellers seem okay to trade off on price and some, some key structuring points, but they need to know that the deals are going to happen. After conditionality, the other thing we're seeing is around sales processes themselves. Um, we have seen some broadly run auction processes fail quite publicly in Asia uh, or go on to a really slow burn as buyers that sort of submit their deliverables late or just fail to bid at all. And in response, what we're seeing is motivated sellers and buyers that do uh, more customized, bespoke, smaller processes rather than the traditional value maximizing uh, auction process. So, again, we're seeing sellers do things like try to narrow down the prospective bidders to the serious bidders early on, and then do a bilateral trade, again, with the idea that this will promote deal certainty, even if it might cost them hitting the jackpot in terms of valuation. The final point I was going to touch upon was uh, structuring to solve problems. Um, again, in their focus on certainty over maximum price in these deals, we are seeing sellers being more accommodating on some of the core deal terms, uh, to reflect issues in the current environment that might otherwise block the deals from happening, especially uncertainty on, on valuation. Um, i just share three examples that I've been doing recently. I think first is contingent payments, and 
David's already discussed in the UK, but we're definitely seeing on this type of transaction a real move towards uh, a desire to not pay 100% of the consideration in cash up front at the time of closing and, and more a move towards some form of earn out. So it's not a clear trend across all deals, but we're definitely seeing more of it and, and certainly on these non-crown jewels deals. The second structuring, I, I've drawn a little picture on the next slide, if we could move it along. But it's a, it, 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 it's a live example, which we've worked on uh, quite recently, and it's effectively a seller keeping stub equity in a target. You can see there that the seller actually presumably wanted to sell 100%, but actually retained 25%. Well, why, why, would, you, why would you do this? Uh, two main benefits outside of regulated industry. Um, firstly, funding. Say so the buyer needs less cash up front to do the deal. Uh, so you can jump over that hurdle here. And the second is that actually retaining this stub equity can mitigate some valuation disagreements. Buyer is taking less risk on the valuation of the target. And indeed, the seller, if it believes that there is upside to the valuation, it gets to participate in that upside after closing. You can also add a put call. Um, and we didn't do it on this transaction, but on other transactions, we've heard of put and calls being added to give you a route to 100% or give you a route to a, a full exit in due course. The final structural solution is on the next slide. Again, a case study of a, a recent deal. David, if we can move the slide across. Thank you. Um, so this deal was proposed as a minority equity investment in the investee company. Uh, and suddenly the world fell over overnight. Uh, and our, for our client, it had two, two major problems. One, valuation. Uh, the valuation did not stack up overnight because the business plan did no longer make sense. Um, the second point is that it didn't want to take equity risk. This was a relatively early stage company and they saw financial stress coming, so they didn't want to be, be at the back of the queue if there was an issue. Uh, the fix here was to flip their equity investment and make it into a debt one. So we, 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 we instead made their subscription convertible loan notes, and that fixed two problems. One, it was debt, and we actually got letters of subordination from the other creditors, so it became senior debt, and that fixed their, their problem of not wanting to take equity risk. And the second feature that we, could, we used here was, was to, to fix the conversion price at effectively the valuation of the company at the next qualifying equity raise. And we could then set parameters around that to ensure that the valuation happened at a time when the business had, had normalized. So that's a little, a little, I guess, technique that was taken from um, private company financing's early stage VC deals and used to get this deal across the line. With that being said, I would hand over to Richard, who's going to talk to us about the US. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Chris, and uh, uh, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. I hope you can move to the next slide. I'll be focusing on the United States. Uh, let me start with a, a brief market overview. 2020 in the U.S. was very much like a number of the other jurisdictions uh, we've heard about earlier on this presentation from an M&A perspective. A very significant dip early on as COVID hit, followed by a recovery. As we look back on 2020, although the final numbers haven't yet been reported by the usual data providers, we can say the following things with confidence about US M&A in 2020. First, dollar volume is up uh, comfortably over prior years. However, the number of transactions is down. So the US market is more reliant on big ticket or mega cap transactions. 
this is the continuation of a trend that has been observable in the U.S. for several years now, increasing focus on big-ticket M&A in particularly tech, telecom, media, healthcare uh, broadly, and financial services. The second thing we can see is a continuing drift toward the use of share or equity consideration. Again, a continuation of prior trends, mega cap transactions in the U.S. tend to use stock rather than cash. And so the continuing drift toward mega cap transactions is accelerating that trend. As you've heard, particularly in Asia from Chris, increasing use of contingent consideration, primarily in the form of earnouts in private M&A, both the number of transactions and the percentage of transactions. Uh, so the percentage of transaction value uh, being represented by earnouts. This is not the continuation of a prior trend. Our analysis is that this is a specific response to COVID, uh, and we expect that will be reversed going forward as M&A normalizes in a, in a post-COVID world. And, and on the post-COVID world, mark me as an optimist. I am confident it is coming, but I'm not going to promise it's the first half of 2021. Uh, a couple of areas of non-growth in U.S. M&A, uh, consistent with what you've heard from some of the other jurisdictions, a continuing drop in cross-border M&A. This, too, is a continuation of a multi-year trend and cannot be attributed to COVID. Uh, it is significantly caused by uh, a drop in inbound Chinese M&A. And that is linked to Citius concerns, consistent with what we've heard from other jurisdictions, uh, and is unrelated to COVID. A Chinese inbound M&A into the U.S. fell precipitously several years ago and hasn't yet recovered. What we did see in 2020 was a tailing off of other inbound M&A, uh, particularly from some of the Asian jurisdictions such as Japan that had, his, had been building back up their inbound M&A. Somewhat surprisingly, private equity is down, but only slightly in, in 2020. Uh, it's cash, which means you don't have uh, stock consideration to help ameliorate risk. Uh, but uh, it's a testament to the amount of dry powder available in the U.S. private equity funds that they have to put it to work. Uh, and after the significant dip in the March-June time, in that fiscal quarter, uh, U.S. private equity has returned. So that has been uh, something of a surprise, and we expect that private equity will, over the course of 2021, return to its usual uh, volume or percentage volume of U.S. M&A activity. A, a few things on deal terms and related litigation. Yeah, not surprisingly, the, the U.S. has seen a significant amount of litigation, both threatened and completed relating to COVID. Consistent with what you've heard from some of the other jurisdictions, by and large, buyers have been completely unsuccessful in asserting that the COVID-19 pandemic was a material adverse change entitling them to get out of the transaction. In the US market, as compared to, for example, Europe, material adverse change conditions are quite standard in both public and private M&A notwithstanding their ubiquitousness, they are almost never successfully asserted. And that trend has continued. 
both in the decided cases and in the settlements of disputes, it is clear that very few buyers, if any, have been able to take any comfort in relying on material adverse change clauses, whether or not the clause contained a specific pandemic exception. As a negotiation matter, all almost all MAC clauses in the US that were in agreements signed up after about April of 2020 have a specific pandemic exception. Even without that, though, the outcome in the US has been crystal clear. COVID-19 is not a MAC. Different from that, however, has been the success of buyers in getting out of transactions based upon non-compliance by targets with the ordinary course covenants. Here in the US, we even see a further distinction between the ordinary course and the negative covenants. In US M&A, it is completely standard for a buyer to have the benefit of an affirmative ordinary course covenant from the target business, that is that the target business will be conducted in the ordinary course, and for there to be a closing condition, that is that the target has complied in all material respects with that covenant. Buyers have generally been quite successful in asserting breaches of the ordinary course covenant, the affirmative ordinary course covenant. In addition, it is customary for a buyer in the US to have the benefit of a negative conduct of the business covenant. Between signing and completion, the target will not do X, where X is a specified litany of things. Many target companies have done X, notwithstanding the covenant, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Buyers have been almost universally successful in asserting failed closing conditions relating to targets failure to comply in all material respects with negative covenants. This has led to a shift in drafting and negotiation. Consistent with other jurisdictions and the other markets, buyers have been uh, forced to accept changes in the ordinary course covenants uh, using reasonable effort standards or consistent with other markets and across the board exception for anything responsive to the pandemic. As in other markets, buyers have also you know, cleverly asserted non-compliance with access rights. You know, the normal thing that says the target will give the buyer access to the business and they've been unable to do that for pandemic reasons. Those claims have generally not been well regarded. Uh, and so we're not, we're not seeing any shift in market practice as to the drafting or negotiation of those provisions. The big news in 2020 in the US market from an M&A perspective, leave aside politics and that little image you have of Washington DC burning, uh, is the return in force of the special purpose acquisition company or SPAC. A SPAC is a company that goes public and lists on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ and has nothing but cash and a statement that it is going out to seek an acquisition using the cash that has been raised. Uh, SPACs normally specify an industry. They will normally be sponsored by deal professionals, people with a reputation for being able to do M&A, private equity investors, uh, investment bankers, 
uh, people with history of acquisitions in industries, that sort of thing. Uh, in 2020, uh, over 50% of the US IPOs by number of IPOs were SPACs, which is quite a stunning number. Uh, following on the IPO of the SPAC, there is the so-called de-SPACing transaction in which this new public company actually goes out and makes its acquisition. The impact of SPACs on M&A obviously lags the IPO by a period of time. Most SPACs commit to do their de-SPACing transaction within about 18 months. In fact, the time period between the IPO and the de-SPACing transaction is shorter than that on average. And for SPACs that have gone public in the first half of 2020, they were averaging their de-SPACing transaction in about five months. So over the course of 2020 and at least uh, 2021, we're expecting a significant percentage of M&A activity to be driven by de-SPACing transactions. SPACs are used for a variety of purposes. For sellers, a SPAC is really a choice between going public or doing a SPAC transaction. And the benefit for a seller in doing a, a, in participating as a seller in a de-SPACing transaction versus an IPO is twofold. First, you get more cash out. Now, the, the brute reality in the United States is that if you are a seller in an IPO, it takes quite a few years for you to extract a significant percentage of your equity investment. If you can do a de-SPACing transaction, particularly one in which the SPAC levers up or brings in other equity at the same time, it is possible to get a much higher percentage of your equity investment, realize the cash more quickly. The second thing is that there is almost no market execution risk. As opposed to an IPO, where a seller is always at risk to the markets turning down, uh, and it takes three to four to six months to do an IPO, and so you're at risk over that time period. With a de-stacking transaction, once a seller has agreed the price with the stack, there is no market risk left. However, it is not risk-free. The market risk has been replaced with SPAC shareholder approval risk. So from a seller's perspective, the seller gets to choose what risk it wants to run. The benefit of the, the de-stacking route is that you have more ability to implement structures to enhance the likelihood of getting shareholder approval. That's a risk that is more easily managed for a seller than market risk. The big question that many people in the US have wrestled with over the course of this year is whether this dramatic uptick in SPAC IPOs and thus derivatively the uptick in SPAC M&A is here for the long term or whether we're seeing a bit of a bubble. Of course, nobody really knows. Nobody sees SPACs as linked to COVID. So we're not thinking this is a COVID-specific bubble that will then you know, disappear when the weather gets warm or anything like that. However, there is a recognition that the SPAC is a unique animal. There's probably not enough sellers who really need a SPAC versus an IPO or who really need a SPAC versus strategic bidder. 
and that we're expecting some of the, the late SPACs to market in 2020 to not do very well in their de-SPACing transaction. And some of the more recent experiences beginning to show that in terms of market performance of a SPAC after it has done its acquisition. So we're thinking that this may be a bubble that will sort of work its way out to just normal market forces, that it will cease to be an attractive investment that will reduce the flow of money into SPACs and thus reduce the number of SPACs and bring it down from this extraordinary 55% number to something closer to, uh, let's say, the 2016, 2017 or 2018 average, more like you know, 5 to 10%. So on that note to David, I, I think I'll declare that the U.S. done, no comments on politics, and I'll turn it back to you. Thanks very much, Richard. Um, so that concludes our whistle-stop tour around jurisdictions. Um, we're going to go over to Ollie now, uh, who's got some questions which he's going to pose to us, which have come through on the chat. Ollie. Thanks, David, and thank you to, to everyone who has submitted questions. Our first one is on SPAC, so Richard, what one for you. Do you think the current technology is a genuine innovation, or does it just show that there's something amiss in the U.S. capital market? Um, that, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Uh, I, I think it is more the latter. Uh, I think the uh, the issue about about SPACs is primarily driven from the the challenge that sellers have in trying to go public in a conventional way and their inability to market to deal with market risk and i think that's driven by you know the nuts and bolts of sec review of ipos the nuts and bolts of how underwriters work um and, and that kind of thing uh, so, in a broader context, I think the, uh, the the push to SPACs may lead people to rethink some of the basic plumbing of IPOs. But for right now, I do think a big part of the SPAC boom is people trying to is coming up with a market solution to a to a market problem, as opposed to genuine innovation. Right. Thank you. On to our next one, and one for you, Chris. How do you see Chinese outbound MA activity levels kind of to the key markets outside Asia going forward? Um, yeah, so the key markets are, are really the EU and the US. And I think you could say there's some green shoots from that perspective. I think t two things. One, on the EU side, the EU and China have agreed in principle a new treaty on investment to encourage bilateral investment, which in theory opens market access on both sides. Uh, and then uh, uh, on the U.S. side, uh, we've got obviously the change in presidency today from from um, from Mr. Trump to, to Mr. Biden. So I guess if you know if you look at those two things, you might say, well, there's some light at the end of the tunnel uh, if you're an optimist. But I, I'm cautious about that. I think I don't I don't want to over estimate the thaw. Um, most of the FBI restrictions which have been brought in during this pandemic, I think much like when you bring in a tax, it's it's very hard to take it away again. Um, it, it will Biden really change the attitude of CFIUS? I think probably less tweets, um, less heat. But I, I don't really see any substantive change in CFIUS, and that's based on a, a recent deal that we're doing. 
And then I think the other thing to, 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 to not forget from the Chinese perspective is that the pushes from overseas countries are only one aspect. Actually, there's still a very significant pull from Beijing on Chinese companies doing outbound. Um, so effectively, the mandate is to focus on the domestic market. And that was, again, made clear in the new five-year plan, which came out last or a couple of weeks ago from Beijing. So, so overall, with the pushes, I think, from overseas countries set to continue, the pools from Beijing to focus on the domestic market, I don't see Chinese outbound increasing to the heady days of 2015 anytime soon. Thank you. And so probably time for our last question and and one for you, Natalie. Have you seen, or through our data, have you seen that COVID is causing deals to take longer in Europe um, and attracts more political scrutiny? Um, I think at the start of the pandemic, there was obviously a lot of disruption. And so deals were taking a bit longer, um, particularly if you needed regulatory approval. Um, but largely things are back on track with regulators. So, for example, the European Commission is is broadly back to its usual timescales in terms of responding, albeit at quite a different um, world to before with virtual meetings and, and hearings. Um, I think notwithstanding that, though, we are still seeing people build quite um, a lot of leeway into long-stop dates. And uh, I think now that COVID-19 is sort of, um, you know, very much more known to us, we're seeing that sellers are, are sort of less willing to offer contractual protection. So we are seeing, in some instances, buyers wanting to conduct more thorough due diligence. So in that sense, it could add a little bit of onto the timing of, of the deal. I think on the political scrutiny point, um, all speakers today have alluded to um, protectionism that we're seeing through FDI regimes and, and Europe, yeah, no different. I, I think in terms of the jurisdictions I went through earlier, um, all of them other than the Netherlands uh, had some sort of change that they put in place last year in their laws as a direct response to, to COVID. Um, and of course, um, you know, we've also seen the National Security Investment Bill in the UK that, that David talked about. So, so in short, yes, we're seeing more protectionism. And I think it'll be interesting to, to see what happens through 2021 um, as more of the sort of fallout from COVID becomes clear. OK, I think, Ollie, that's probably uh, all that we've got time for. So it just remains for me to, to thank everybody, the panellists, for sharing your insights across the globe. Uh, thanks to everybody for joining. We very much appreciate your questions and thoughts uh, on what we've been discussing today. If you do have any further questions, then please feel free to email any of us um, or your usual tool from May or indeed Kravath contact, uh, and we'll be happy to, to respond to your questions directly. But from us, it's thank you very much and goodbye. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.